welcome to the CX Chronicles podcast. This is the show for customer service managers, VPs of customer experience, and all of you other CXers out there. Every week, we are going to dig into topics, challenges, wins, and updates in the CX and customer service community. I'm your host, Adrian Brady Chisana. Check us out at CXChronicles.com. Feel free to reach out to us anytime. Thank you so much for being a part of the CX Chronicles Nation. I'm super excited to welcome Jeff Godelf to the CX Chronicles podcast today. Jeff is the author of Lean UX, a book that changed the way that many people think about experience design and user experience. Jeff believes that there's way too much time and money being wasted on ideas that don't work. The world driven by technology is changing way too fast for us to be able to predict what's going to work. So today's business leaders must inspire and collaborate, not micromanage, to drive agility and innovation within their organizations. Jeff works with business leaders across the world on this clear mission. Today's show, Jeff's going to get into the weeds on the four CX pillars and how your company needs to be thinking about user experience, design experience, and design thinking to make sure that you're curating a phenomenal experience for all of your customers to grow far into the future. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Jeff to the CX Chronicles podcast. Freshdesk, everything you need to redefine your customer support. Keep track of conversations. Resolve your customer issues. Support your customer across all channels. And increase your team's productivity. Check out Freshdesk at freshdesk.com today. Hey, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us on the CX Chronicles podcast today. My pleasure, Adrian. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely, man. I'm, I'm super excited to have you on the show today. You have a great story. There's tons of valuable experience that you can bring for how the CX Nation can think about lean UX and design experience. And, and Jeff, not a better guy to talk to because of uh, all the businesses and all the business leaders you've worked with on this topic Awesome. I, I hope I live up to the hype. <laughs> <laughs> no, you certainly will, sir. I promise you. Let's start with the age-old question. Jeff, take five minutes to tell the CX Nation about how you got to where you are today and how you became uh, an expert at user experience. Yeah, so, so I started my career doing uh, basic graphic design and front-end development uh, in the Web 1.0 days, um, really, really basic stuff, HTML and, and really basic graphic design in, in the early days of the web. And then somebody came to the office one day and they said, uh, we have this book and it's called Information Architecture for the World Wide Web. And, uh, and they said, who wants to read it? <laughs> that was the first question. And uh, that sounds like a great uh, you know, assignment. I, I said, I'll read it. That sounds interesting to me. And so I read it, and, and it really changed my worldview of what it meant to build digital experiences, even back then when they were fairly static experiences. Uh, the, th- that book really changed my perception and said, look, currently I'm, I'm, at the, I'm at the end of the process. I'm, I'm the guy who takes 
uh, all of the orders and all of the direction, and I, and I put the pixels together on the screen that make it look like somebody else's vision. This book says, hey, you could actually be at the beginning of the process and really start to think about shaping the experience for the people who end up using this product. Now, information architecture um, was critical to, to static web design. It's actually still critical today. It just doesn't get mentioned nearly as much anymore. But that evolved. So I, I read that book. I became an information architect. I moved into user experience design as the web became more interactive. I moved into leadership positions in design and user experience design, building teams in a variety of different companies, both um, in consulting as well as in-house. And then something interesting happened. Ten years ago, I found myself in a position where uh, I was leading a design team, building a design team, really, in New York City at a company called The Ladders. And the company was transitioning. It was about 400 people, 400-person company, transitioning from waterfall software development, kind of the traditional, we plan it up front, we design it, we build it, we ship it, and then we hope that it works kind of process to, to a more agile process. And I had to not only build a team, but I had to build a team that knew how to work, how to do design and and user experience and ultimately build good customer experiences in this new agile world. And 10 years ago, there were no great answers to this. There were a couple of decent ones and then a lot of tragedy. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. A lot of crying online. A lot of this is stupid. Don't do it. Right. Um, but look, I had to do it. And so I took a learning, a learning mindset to this. And I said, look, if all these people are struggling with it, let's talk to these people and understand what they're doing wrong or not what they're doing wrong, but why what they're doing isn't working. I don't mean to say make it sound like they were making mistakes. Right. But why what they were doing wasn't working and then essentially learn from that and try something else. And so along with the help of my team at the time, my, my UX team, we had the opportunity to really iterate through this process. And over the course of about six to nine months, we came up with something that worked for us. Now, this was, this was a fundamental shift in my career because I started writing about this process and the learnings that came out of our figuring out how to do user experience design in Agile, which became Lean UX. Yep. Everybody was having these challenges. And so now that I was out there saying, hey, I have an answer, it's not necessarily the answer, but it's something that worked for us. The conversations that I was having and the people that I was talking to began to change. And over the course of the, of the subsequent 10 years, um, I've been able to take the concepts of Lean UX, which I, which I built, again, with the help of my team, with my co-author, Josh Seiden, with a bunch of really smart people, and, and translate it into a, a consulting, coaching, training, uh, keynote speaking career about building great team collaborations about doing great work in agile environments, and most importantly, ensuring that no matter what kind of, of, of product or service or experience you're building, the customer is always at the center of it. And that, that kind of catches us up to today where I work as a consultant coach, trainer, and speaker with organizations around the world, teaching them how to maintain the customer at the center of conversation. And, and that, that holds true for conversations at the, the product development, the service development level, um, all the way up to the C-suite. That's awesome. I mean, Jeff, I just want to make it clear that I had several conversations this week uh, prior to you coming on the show. And I, and I spent a lot of time thinking about how user experience and customer experience are so closely related. And, and, and more importantly, how highly connected 
they are to the four CX pillars, right? Team, tools, process, and feedback. And user experience and design experience, it has all of these interesting facets around how company leaders or, or, or customer-focused business leaders more specifically need to think about getting better at collecting and assessing feedback early on in the process before diving down the rabbit hole and investing a bunch of time, money, and energy on initiatives that simply aren't going in the right direction. So I'm super excited about you bringing some of your your past experiences working across a variety of businesses and different industries with different teams, with different executives. And and it's really awesome how it gives you such an awesome uh, uh, crafted lens on how other business owners, business executives, and startup founders should be thinking about this in their own world. The last thing is obviously the workshops, right? I'm super excited to kind of chat with you about some of the stuff that you find out in these workshops when you're working with customer-minded business professionals every single day. Absolutely. I mean, look, that's the benefit of, of you know, the, the ways of working these days. You know, I have a friend um, whose father did 40 years at the same company, and that's fantastic, and I'm sure he grew professionally. But generally speaking, today, we don't see that kind of loyalty, so the opportunity to jump around and learn is amazing. Now, look, the, the dirty secret behind all of this lean UX and customer experience and uh, user experience stuff, at least at least the process aspect of it, um, lean UX, agile design thinking, those kinds of things, um, is that it's risk mitigation, yep. you know? Uh, and, I, you know, it's, 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 I, I don't know about you, but I, I don't think risk mitigation is necessarily a sexy book title. So. <laughs> but, I mean, maybe you could work it somehow, but no, it's not It's not exactly a, a top seller list in, in, in my mind right now. <laughs> right, right. And so, and so we find these catchy names for them. But look, th- yeah. at the end of the day, look, we all work in this world where we're trying to create um, – really great experiences, services, products for the people that we serve. Um, we're, we're experts, we have experience, and we have good ideas. But the reality today is that a lot of our ideas are going to be wrong. And so all of these processes are designed, like you said, to learn sooner what combination of, of digital copywriting value proposition, calls to action, uh, interaction model will deliver the service that ultimately meets the customer's needs the best and that ultimately helps us as a business. Yep. Totally, totally hear you on that, Jeff. And to layer onto it, you know, for folks who are not familiar with the idea of lean UX or design thinking, some of the typical questions that you should really Ask your team or ask yourself before you go spend, um, you know, whether it's a thousand dollars or a million bucks of your company's money for something that nobody cares about and no one's ever going to pay for. Ask tons of questions. What is the product for? Who's the user? Who cares about it? How are they going to use it? You got to get deep on this stuff to figure it all out. Ask the W's, right? Who, what, where, when, why? Get into it, man. Figure out where you end up before you waste time, money, and energy. And also, you know, it forces you and your team, specifically, this is for leadership team members out there, forces you to think about goals, right? So goals is one thing. And coming up with clear goalposts, that's one thing. But then you need to think about, and you have to let yourself lead to, what are the signals that my company or my team needs to think about as it relates to goals. And then once you know the signals, now you can figure out what the kindling is. And now you can figure out what those what those metrics are, those key performance indicators are 
to guide your business, to guide your team, and to make sure that you're keeping things on the train tracks each and every day with your business? The most important thing that we do first with every single engagement is we actually forget the ideas. <laughs> we push the ideas aside, the, the, the solutions, the experiences, the services, and we, I, I don't throw them away, but we just push them aside and, I, and we focus on the problem. Yep. What is the problem that we are trying to solve at the moment for our customers, for our users, for our staff, for whoever it is? What, and really, because we, we all love to live in feature land, in yeah, solution yeah. land, right? I got, a, I got a great idea. I'll be the hero. I'll solve it. Awesome. Hold on to that for just a second. Yep. But let's figure out what is the actual problem that we're solving. That's the first thing that we do. And then once we can actually agree on what the problem is that we're solving, the next thing that I do, and this is by far the most important thing to me, this is the, the whole thing, everything that I do pivots on this next step, uh, whether it succeeds or not, is we define the success criteria for that problem. And we define it not in terms of a solution or a product or an experience. We solve it with outcomes, with measurable changes in customer behavior. And the question, the, the key question that I ask every team says, if we solve this problem, what will people be doing differently? And people being customers, users, staff, sure. yep. colleagues, whatever it is. But if we get this right, what will people be doing differently? Because that's the measure of success. Building the thing is, uh, is, is the beginning of the conversation with the people that you're serving. But the, but the real measure of success is getting them to change their behavior in a way that benefits them. That makes perfect sense to me. But I do have a follow-up question to that idea, Jeff. When you start with defining the problem, is it hard to get people to, A, agree upon that problem and what it actually is, and B, agree upon what all of the solution-based variables are further on down the road or in the de design experience process itself. That's got to be tough based on who you're working with, right? I think so. I mean, look, my experience has been that generally speaking, the answer is yes, but it's not always the case. I mean, there are always, there are always some teams who kind of get it. But generally speaking, I think people, again, getting them to back up and think about this as a problem to solve is, is uh, you know, they'll say things like, I'll say things like they'll say we want to build a we want to build a mobile experience yep. for for our service. Great. Why do you want to do that? Well, because they have it. The competition. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Right? right. Okay. Great, but how do you know that that's working for them? What problem does that solve for their users, right? And do we have the same users, the same customers, that type of thing? And so, getting them to come back uh, is 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 getting to even agree that there's a problem to solve here. Uh, is is difficult enough, and then yeah, bringing that alignment is difficult. But uh, you know, it's it's um, it's 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 an alignment exercise that when we do build that consensus, it really refines the work of the team to be far more effective and efficient. Yep, I agree. It's the age old taking time to prepare and think through uh, a given strategy to figure out how you'll get to your end goal type of an idea, right? Um, you know, I'd love to flip the camera to a different angle for a second, though. As you, as you know, we spend a ton of time on the CX Chronicles podcast talking about the four CX pillars, team, tools, process, and feedback. And, you know, Jeff, you get to travel around the world helping customer-focused business leaders 
think about design experience, think about design thinking, and how it relate and UX, of course, and how it relates to the first pillar of team. What are some of the major themes or trends that you hear startup founders and executives thinking about as it relates to the first pillar team? Absolutely. Um, it's funny. Uh, yesterday, I was teaching a class in Berlin, and there was a guy there who was the chief product officer for a startup. It was a company with less than 100 employees. And he had been to a few of these lean and agile and design thinking trainings. And he pulled me aside about midway through the course. And he said, I've been to a lot of these trainings. He goes, and it seems like everybody keeps saying the same thing. And I said, you know what? It does boil down to the same principles, whether you're teaching agile or design thinking or lean startup or whatever it is. And yet it amazes me how many organizations don't act on these core principles. And so when it comes to team, the the ideal state of a team is a cross-functional collaborative team. So what, the, what does that mean? It means that we need... Uh, the skill sets on the team that will allow us to get the work done. That does not mean that we need representation from every single discipline. It does mean that we need the skill sets. So if you've got a guy who can write front-end code and design, terrific, right? If there's someone who can, uh, you know, who can write copy and do QA, fantastic, right? Like I, I, I don't care what their job title is, especially when you're, when you're in a startup or a high-growth situation, Right, people are going to wear multiple hats, but small, collaborative, cross-functional teams are the ideal state for moving quickly, deciding quickly, de-risking ideas quickly, building that alignment, and then iterating on your product, improving the product continuously. Um, that, that's the absolute key. And the other aspect of that team is that they need to be empowered to make the day-to-day decisions. This is where a lot of the, the benefits of that team structure break down because you'll have uh, a founder who, who's operating as chief product officer or so, somebody who's in, in an executive position who then is trying to dictate to the team what to do. That team is the closest to the product and to the work on a day-to-day basis. They're closest to the information. And the daily decisions that they make are generally decisions that – if they're wrong, we don't have to live with them for very long, right? In a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll update the product, we'll update the service. And so one of the key components of this cross-functional collaboration is empowering the team to make that day-to-day decision. When teams can do that, they own the product. They, they're passionate about the work. They feel like they're working on something that they helped uh, create. And the quality of the work, their passion for the work rises dramatically. I couldn't agree anymore with that, Jeff. You know, one of the things that we spend a ton of time thinking about here at CX Chronicles is the idea of focusing on accountability and authority. So any business owner or executive, uh, you know, if you want to win, you need to put your team in a position to win at all costs, right? But part of part of winning at all costs is you got to give something up, right? You can't be in control of every decision. And these two things right here, right? Accountability and authority and knighting the right folks with those privileges, um, it's going to help to grow your business to levels that you haven't seen before. If you let your company leaders and managers, the ones that are are, are are just kicking ass each day, rip it down the highway and they're constantly testing, researching, implementing, and learning, 
you're going to go ahead and put them in a position where they can reach critical innovation levels. And if they're going to start hitting those critical innovation levels, they're going to be growing your business and they're going to be keeping your customers happy. So, so look, yes. And it gets increasingly more complicated as the size of the organization grows. So I think that, that in a startup situation, in a high growth situation, and even in a mid-sized situation, your goal, your goal is to optimize for simplicity. Use the tools that make sense for your teams, the tools that they want to use. I, generally speaking, uh, I am, uh, I'm, I'm tool agnostic in a sense. People ask me, well, what, do you, what, what, what products do you use? And I can tell them what products I use because they work for me. Sure, yeah. um, but optimizing for simplicity and efficiency is the key. I cannot tell you how many teams I work with in large enterprises whose productivity is hindered by their inability to simply do things like share large files yeah. or just connect for a video conference without spending 10 minutes going through, can you see me? Can you hear me? Can you, <laughs> yeah. right? can you see my screen? It is the worst. Yes, absolutely. Yep. And, and, and so, so again, the thinking, the thinking here has to be around how do I enable my teams to do the best possible work? Can I, how do I give them the best possible tools uh, to do what they need to do um, so that they're not hindered by any of this? And, and there's, there's another component here as well. All of us these days, um, unless you're a tiny little startup that, that is all sitting in the same office, are dealing with some kind of uh, distributed teams or remote teams. Sure. And if I, if I had any bit of advice here, and I learned this advice listening and reading material uh, from Jason Freed of Basecamp, formerly 37 Signals, yep, awesome. um, the key message here is that if you have anybody on your team that's remote and you have to collaborate with them, then you have to optimize your collaboration tools for remote What I mean by that is even if you have five people in the office and two people who are not in the office, you can't optimize for the five people in the office. You have to optimize for remote. That means everybody's got a camera on. Everybody's connected through the, through the web conferencing tool. Everybody's looking at the shared document. We're not passing paper around, that type of thing. And so, so that the, 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 the collaboration is taking place in the same space for everybody. Otherwise, you're always going to have some folks who are, who are unable to participate at the same capacity as everybody else. Yep, I, and so, yeah, sorry, keep going. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. So it's just it's just the basic stuff. So if you're using Zoom, if you're using Slack, if you're using Dropbox, if you're using Trello, right, to manage the work, right, everybody's got to be in those tools when we're talking about the work. I was just going to say that you're so on the money with that one. When you are talking about products or services – especially to your point, right, with complex organization structures, once once these companies start getting bigger and there's more people and there's more teams and there's more leaders and there's more ideas, that's when you really begin to see some new forms of friction and new challenges around keeping your team in line with how to use these said tools, right? Um, are you training them? Are you giving them content to be able to actually understand what the expectations are? Where do the playbooks live? Is there an LMS or a learning management system that you actually can go to and see this stuff? You, you really do have to be thinking about this before expanding your toolkit to wild and crazy places. Yeah. I mean, look, my, I, I'm a small company. I'm a company of one and a half. I've got a part-time employee, and that's, that's, that's me, right? I do my CRM in Trello. 
because it works for me. Yep. It's it's simple. It allows me to track the work. It sends me alerts. It reminds me when I have to do work. If, if the situation got more complex where Trello couldn't handle it, I would move to something else. But for me, this is the absolute simplest tool that I can use to keep me aware of, of how I'm managing these particular relationships. I'll give you one more example. One of the most popular uh, – in, in fact, I, I, would, I would venture to say it is the most popular, but I don't have the statistics to prove that. Agile project management tools today that almost every organization uses is called Jira. Yep. It's made by a company called Atlassian. Yep. Everywhere I go in the world, how many of you use Jira? 100% of the hands go up. How many of you love it? Zero percent of the hands go up. <laughs> right. I was right? just going to say, let's see where he goes with this one because I know exactly what you meant. Yep. Right. It's it's the tool that everybody loves to hate, and then yeah. and yet everybody uses it, and then forces it to do things that it was never designed to do or support, and then and that's where the pain and the lack of efficiency starts. So again, optimize for simplicity. Hundred percent, Jeff. You like it's funny that you bring that up. I didn't even know you were going to mention that, but like. In New York City, at a, at a number of the startups that, that I was a part of, you know, helping to build and shape and to grow, that is exactly what we would go through with that, that wonderful tool that you mentioned. Because it's like, yes, it works. And yes, it can be such a fantastic tool that helps get you from point A to point B, whether it's ticketing or whether it's tech management or whatever. But man, I remember how the troops would always talk about just like, when are we going to move to a, <laughs> a new solution that actually has some UX principles in, in mind and actually doesn't suck to use for 40 hours a week. So it's, 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 it's funny that you bring that up. And you know, you know, and what happened there too, by the way, just, I, I, just, just a quick aside here is that they were starting to have their lunch eaten by Trello because Trello was easier and simpler to use and basically did the same things with 90% fewer features. And so they bought Trello, yep. right? And, and they're now selling that as the kind of the, the easier version of Jira. 100% agree with you. And you really do have to think about it in that type of way. You know, Jeff, during my time building and managing multiple startups in New York City across multiple spaces, um, that is, that's the same type of experience we had, right? You know, especially with our frontline troops. These are the people that had to use these tools for 50 hours a week. And these were the folks that were killing themselves and doing an incredible job to make sure that customers had an awesome experience each and every day or platform users had an awesome experience right with 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 our service so it's 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 critical to take that type of internal feedback and do something about it you know and this leads to another idea jeff that i really want you to dive into which is mvp or minimal viable product right this has been something that's helped me uh, throughout my entire career with thinking about when and where and how to invest in time, money, energy, budget, whatever. And, and, and I'd love for you to take some time to talk with the CX Nation about how do they need to think about what an MVP is, how they can use it, what they can gain from it, and how it can change the way that they actually manage some of their future challenges while running their businesses. Yes. MVP is a universal term. It's one of those things where uh, I'm in front of a room uh, uh, in, in Berlin this week, London this week, wherever I am. And you say, how many of you, how many of you say the word MVP? 100% of the hands go up. Now, MVP is a wonderful concept that has been badly abused by the business community. And, um, and, and, it's partially because of the way that it's named because people, you say minimum viable product, you're expecting a viable product. Now, Eric Reese, author of the lean startup, 
uh, brought the concept of MVP to the masses with the success of his book, The Lean Startup. Eric sold over a million books, which means that Eric gets to define the term. That's how, <laughs> that's how the rules work. Yes, sir. Right? Yep. yep. He, he who sells the or he or she who sells the most books gets to define the term. Now, the way that the lean startup defines MVP is the smallest thing that you can do or make to test your hypothesis, to test your idea. So you've got an idea about how to solve your problem. What's the least amount of work that you need to do to learn whether or not that idea is valid or not? Now, in the majority of situations, you do not need to build the product. You can go talk to customers. You can build a prototype. You can uh, go, uh, you know, run an experiment. You can, you can fake the experience um, through manual labor. There's a thousand ways that you can go learn something without having to actually build the product or the service itself. Unfortunately, most organizations take MVP literally. They expect a minimum viable product, a thing that I can ship yep. to customers and make money from yep. that, they, that they can use. And this is where we run into trouble, right? We want people to run experiments. We want them to learn quickly that their ideas are terrible and to get off the terrible ideas and move on to the good ideas. The problem is this. The more that a team invests in their idea, the more difficult it is to be wrong or to admit that you're wrong. In other words, as the investment rises, yep. standing up in front of your colleagues, your boss, your boss's boss, your customers and saying, ah, we screwed that up, yep. Yep. <laughs> right? It becomes, a, uh, becomes a career, yeah, it's a career limiting move you in a lot it. of organizations. No, totally. Uh, and so the goal of the MVP is to, is to get you that learning as quickly as possible. So instead of spending a month, or three months, or six months to learn that it's a bad idea, spend a day, or three days, or a week, and if you spend a week on something and you find out that you were wrong, all right, I lost a week, but I learned something and I know where to go from here. It's a lot easier, a lot safer uh, to stand up and say, uh, I was wrong, but I learned something and, and I'm going to change course. That's the whole purpose of the MVP. It's not, it's not the maximum crappy release that you can fit in by the deadline. It's not the, the, the least we can get away with. Uh, it's not phase one. Um, it is literally an experiment. And if you find in your organization that saying MVP is misleading, people expect a viable product, which, you know, if they haven't read the Lean Startup, yes, they would probably expect sure. that because that's what it yeah. says. Totally. Um, yep. Then th throw the term away. Yep. Throw it away and use the term experiment, um, something along those lines that gets people to understand that you are not shipping a a thing that we are going to make money from we are shipping this to learn something yep you're right it's super important for our listeners to understand what the importance of the mvp or the minimal viable product is right and building on that jeff and staying on the fourth cx pillar of feedback can you talk a little bit about the idea of user research or user testing or maybe even what some basic voice of customer exercises look like. Like what are some quick, simple tips or maybe even a story, right? If that's easier, <laughs> that, that could help us understand this notion just a little bit better. Yeah. Let me tell you a story. Um, three years ago, three, four years ago now, maybe it was in five years ago. God, time, Adrian, time. <laughs> it's fast, man. It's fast. <laughs> yes, fast. 
Uh, I, I got invited to Samsung in Korea, which was uh, really an honor. I'd never been to Korea, and I really wanted to go, and they were kind of paying everything, you know, business class all the way. Uh, and I was thrilled. So I took the gig, and I went to Korea, and I spoke in front. I did, I did a couple of events, and one of the events that I did in uh in in uh, in South Korea was uh, I spoke to a room of 100 software engineers, whose job it was to build smart TV. That's what they did. They built the software and the hardware that was that ends up becoming smart TV for yeah, Samsung. That's awesome. And so I get up there and I'm ta- and I'm talking to them about customer research. The exact question you, you just asked me. And I talk about the benefits of it and the values of it and, uh, and, and, and why it's important to learn things quickly so you can adjust course. And I finish my talk. And at the end of the talk, I say, are there any questions? And, and, and silence. I mean, it's just, it's crickets, crickets in there. And then one brave engineer raises her hand and she looks at me and she says, I said, yeah. And she goes, um, where do we find customers? And, and I, my, I mean, my jaw dropped, right? Because the, these people make television, yeah. And it, it, probably the most ubiquitous, maybe, maybe, the, maybe the smartphone has overcome, has, has overtaken the TV. But generally speaking, the the, the television is has, be, has been the ubiquitous appliance in people's lives yep. for sixty years. Hundred percent. Yep. Right. Something along those lines. And I said to her, I said, look. You have a television. I know you have one. Look to your left. Look to your right. Your colleagues have a television. As you walk home tonight from work, every single person you pass on the street probably has a television. Yep. Right? Those are people that you can stop and talk to and ask questions. Right? The, 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 the lesson here to answer your question is you have to be scrappy. You have to go fish where the fish are. Right? And your customers are are available to you. I don't care what business or what service or what industry you're in. There are people that you can talk to in in a, in in any industry or situation. Um, I used to work with this fantastic, fantastically curious software engineer, and we were building a B two B product for small business owners. And on his walk home in New York City, he would walk past delis and nail salons and dry cleaners. And, and, you know, photo, photo equipment shops. And he would stop in and he would ask to speak to the owner on his walk home from work to, to, to ask some questions about the product that we were building. Yep. If, you, if you're building products and services for, for kind of more difficult people to find, brain surgeons, sure, you know. Sure, uh, stuff, yep. Right, stuff like that. Those people have discussion forums. They have LinkedIn groups. They have conventions. They have conferences. They have universities, continuing education. In, in other words, figure out where these folks congregate and then go fishing over there. There's, there like the, my, my passion here is this. There is no excuse for you not to be able to find and talk to the cus- to your target audience. And I don't care what it is that you, uh, that you make or do. If it's really difficult, find people who used to do that. Yep. Right. Yep. So, so you can't get their time now. Like brain, sur- I'll use brain surgeons again because it sounds like <laughs> exotic thing. Uh, that's a good example. That's a good example. Right. <laughs> right. Find, find, find people who used to be brain surgeons, right? Who used to be practicing brain surgeons, and ask them about what it was like to do their job or whatever it is that you're solving for them. Right? There's simply no excuse to f- to, to get creative and finding the people that you're looking for. They 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 have communities. They have congregations. They have events. Um, they have mailing lists, they have forums, they have uh, Facebook groups. Find them, talk to them, they will want to talk to you. 
That's great advice, Jeff. You know, folks that are listening, you always have to be listening and learning for new ways to talk to customers, learn from customers, get in front of customers. And then you got to take all of that feedback and all those learnings and those findings and inject it right back into the way that you can grow your business or your customer base. That's that's one of the biggest tricks. So, Jeff, lastly, as we wrap up the show, is there anything that you'd like to share with the CX Nation? Uh, and and you know, more importantly, how can they get in touch with you uh, if there's things that, 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 that you can help them with or that they want to talk with you more about? And anything else that you're working on for, for, for your business more specifically? Absolutely. Look, I'm the I'm the easiest person to find on the internet. That's by design. So if you're looking for events or conferences or workshops, it's jeffgotthealth.com. That's super easy. The one thing I do want to call out is that over the last couple of years, uh, my co-author and business partner, Josh Seiden, and I have launched a business book publishing press called Sense and Respond Press. We publish short, practical uh, business books for busy executives. So all the topics that we talked about here today, as well as hiring, gender diversity, uh, facilitation, uh, all kinds of topics like that are covered in our very, very short books. You'll find us at senseandrespondpress.com. And so I'd love for you to check out the books, but also we are looking for authors all the time. And so if you've had that book in you and you're wondering how you're going to write 60,000 words, we're only going to ask, we're only going to ask you to write 12,000. Nice. Um, and so uh, if you're interested, check it out. And if you've got a topic that you think busy executives need to know about today and you can write a focused 10 to 12,000 words on it, we would love to hear from you um, through our submission form on at senseandrespondpress.com. So guys, Go check out the uh, go check out the site today, Jeff. I'm so incredibly pumped that you were able to come on the CX Chronicles podcast and talk about all this awesome stuff. Right, you've got some interesting, valuable things that can help any business leader, any business executive, any startup founder. And uh, I'm so appreciative that you were able to come on and chat with the CX Nation. So I look forward to speaking with you guys soon. And uh, best of luck, my friend. <music> Thank you so much for listening to another episode of CX Chronicles. Be sure to subscribe, save, and share with all of your fellow CXers. And until next time, make happiness a habit, CX Chronicles Nation. Check us out at cxchronicles.com.